Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. And last time, we read about the ascent of Ishboshet to the throne. Ishboshet, the son of Shaul, installed by none other than Shaul's chief of staff, Avner ben Ner, who proclaims Ishboshet to be king over the tribes of Israel. In the meantime, David has relocated to Hebron, the capital of his own tribe, Yehuda, and there he has been proclaimed king by his own tribe. And what follows is a protracted struggle between David and David's supporters and Ishboshet, or the house of Shaul, and their supporters. This almost, degrade, almost degrades into a civil war in chapter 2, as Avner and his men fight it out with Yoav, David's general, and David's men. And as the text makes clear, civil war is averted, but the struggle does not end. However, David and his claim to the throne becomes stronger and stronger, whereas the house of Shaul became weaker and weaker. These events reach their culmination in the following two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, which we will talk about today. And they begin by indicating that in Hebron, David has six sons to six different wives. So whereas the David we knew in the first book of Samuel had only two wives, now he is in fact turning into a Near Eastern king with his own harem of six wives, each one of them granting him another successor to the throne. And effectively, what we have at the beginning of chapter three is a succinct succession list, six sons born to David by his six wives. And many of these sons, not all of them, will figure prominently in the chapters that follow. The text indicates that Avner supported the house of Shaul very strongly. Remember, of course, that Ishboshet, the son of Shaul, is really just a puppet king. It's Avner, the wily and powerful chief of staff, who actually wields power over the kingdom of Ishboshet. And all of this comes to a head at the beginning of chapter 3. Shaul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, but Ayah, Ishboshet turns to Avner and says, Why have you slept with my father's concubine? So, in the Hebrew Bible, sleeping with someone else's concubine is interpreted to be an attempt to usurp their authority. This is shown by the report in Genesis chapter 35 of Reuven sleeping with Bilhah the concubine of his father, Yaakov, and of Shalom, the son of David, who will sleep with David's concubines in Samuel 2, chapter 16. Essentially, what's really happening is 
even as Avner supports Ishboshet's claim to the throne, Avner is also amassing the real power, and by taking Shaul's concubine as his own, he now indicates that he, in fact, is in complete control of the kingdom. Avner turns to Ishboshet with rage concerning Ishboshet's accusation. And Avner says, I am now going to switch sides and become a supporter of David. I will assist David in claiming the kingdom, in transferring the kingdom from the house of Shaul to that of David, so that David will be king over all of Israel and over Yehuda from Dun in the north until Be'er Sheva in the south, Velo Yachol Od Lahashivat Avner Davar, Ishboshet could respond nothing to Avner. He remained silent because of his fear of him. So it's at this point, it's a pivotal moment that Avner decides to switch sides. Perhaps he perceives that the ship is going down, that the momentum is with David. Why remain with Ishboshet when that kingdom is destined to fall, when you can join the winner under the best possible terms? Avner now sends messengers to David saying, Lemi Aretz, to whom is this land? I will make an alliance with you and I will assist you in becoming king over all of Israel. David says, I will make that covenant and I will make that alliance, but when you come to meet me, bring me my, bring me my wife Michal, the daughter of Shaul. And in fact, that is what happens. Michal bat Shaul is brought when Avner comes to meet David at Hebron. If we were to analyze what's going on here, we might say David wants to ensure that Michal will not produce a successor to the throne from the house of Shaul, and therefore he demands that for any alliance with Avner to be sealed, Michal has to be brought back to him. Don't forget that the text reported in chapter 25 of the first book of Samuel that Shaul had taken Michal from David and given her to another man. In any case, Avner now meets with David, he meets with the elders of Israel, and he meets with his own tribe, the Benjaminites, and makes it clear that the momentum is with David and that they should throw their support behind him. Avner now comes to David at Hebron with 20 of his men in order to show his support for the king. David prepares a banquet for his men, and they agree that, in fact, Avner will now become David's supporter, perhaps David's right-hand man, as Avner puts it, you will be king over everything that your heart desires. And the text reports very clearly Vayishalach David et Avner, in verse 21, David sent Avner forth, and he went in peace. So David, who will always demonstrate a unique ability to turn enemies 
into friends, sends forth of Ner, his archenemy, his nemesis, as now a member of his alliance, as his ally, and Avner goes forth in peace in order to rally the support of the other tribes. It seems as if it's a done deal. Avner has abandoned Ishboshet. Ishboshet, without the support of Avner, is powerless. It seems like it's only a matter of time before David will become king, but now a complicating factor emerges in the guise of none other than Yoav, David's warrior. Yoav and his men returned. He is told that Avner had met with David and that David sent him forth in peace. Yoav now approaches the king, that is David, and says, what have you done? Avner has only come in order to spy out your weaknesses. And without consulting David, Yoav now makes a lethal choice. He sends messengers to Avner, and Avner is brought back to Hebron. Avner returns. Yoav meets him in the gate of the city as if to speak to him innocently, and there he kills him in cold blood. The text reports this is also, of course, avenging the blood of Asael, Yoav's brother, that had been killed by Avner earlier in battle. When David hears the news that Avner is dead, he proclaims his innocence. I am innocent of this deed. My kingdom is innocent before God from the blood of Avner ben Ner that was shed by Yoav, and may Yoav be cursed for the deed. David now turns to Yoav and to his people, and he orders them to rend their garments, to don sackcloth, and to eulogize Avner. And the king himself went after the bier, that is, the dead body of Avner, being born to burial. Avner was buried in Hebron, and David lifted his voice and cried and offered a lament. When the people wanted David to eat bread, David swore that he would not do so before the setting of the sun in order to indicate that he was observing mourning rites over the death of Avner. The effect is profound. Verse number 36 reports, all of the people recognized and it was good in their eyes everything that the king had done. All of the people and all of Israel knew on that day that it was not David's order that Avner ben Ner be put to death. And this, of course, is incredibly important. David does not want his kingdom to take shape under the cloud of the murder of Avner, as if David ordered it, as if David planned it. David makes it very clear, which is actually the case, that he had nothing to do with it. But as things turn out, this will become a favorable development for the future of David's kingdom, certainly having a rival and an enemy 
such as Avner, out of the way, in the end, will allow David to consolidate his rule and stabilize his kingdom. So this is one of those moments in David's life. And David's life are full of, is, David's life is full of these moments, where as it were, the hand of destiny intervenes to turn the events to David's favor, even though David himself had absolutely no part in the killing of Avner. So Avner is now out of the way. The only person who remains preventing David from becoming king over all of Israel is Ishboshet. When Ishboshet hears that Avner has been killed in Hebron, he becomes weak and desperate. Verse number one of chapter four actually doesn't even call him Ishboshet anymore. And by the way, Ishboshet throughout these chapters has never been called a king. He was set up as king by Avner, but he's never called the king as David is with the close of chapter three. And in the beginning of chapter four, he's not even referred to as Ishboshet, but simply as Ben Shaul, the son of Shaul, as if to say the only reason why he got as far as he got was because he was the surviving son of the king, but that's not going to help him any further. As it turns out, Ishboshet has two officers. The name of one was Ba'ana, the name of the other was Rechav both the sons of Rimon from Be'erot, from the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. All that means is these are people that come from the stronghold of Ishbosheth's own tribe. And these two officers now decide to assassinate Ishbosheth. The text reports, Ishboshet was taking his afternoon nap, and they entered the house under the guise of being wheat merchants. Perhaps that's what the meaning is of verse number six. And they struck down Ishboshet as he slept, and they cut off his head, and they took that head, and they traversed the entire Arava until they brought it to David at Hebron. Verse number eight, they said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Shaul, your enemy, who desire to kill you. May God give my master many victories today against Shaul and against his descendants. David, rather than being overjoyed at the news, of Ishbosheth's death now indicates that he will in fact put the two assassins to death for having killed a righteous man in his house on his bed as he slept. And now says David, I will demand that blood from you and destroy both of you. David commands one of his men, Rechav and Ba'ana are put to death their hands and their legs are cut off and hung up over the pool at Hebron. And in the meantime, the head of Ishbosheth that they had brought to David as, on a platter, as it were, 
was buried in the grave of Avner at Hebron. So this scene is very reminiscent. Our book began with a similar scene. An Amalekite who had escaped from the battlefield and brought David the news that he had personally dispatched Shaul, who was in the death throes. But David was not overjoyed with the news that his enemy was dead. And in fact, he put that Amalekite to death. In a similar way, Rechav and Ba'ana now bring the news of Ishbosheth's demise, and in fact, present his head on a platter to the king. But the king is not overjoyed. The king is not happy at all. And in fact, the king determines that they must both be put to death for having killed an innocent man as he slept on his bed. All of this, all of the events of these two chapters, whether concerning the killing of Avner or the killing of Ishbosheth, David wants to make it crystal clear that neither of those murders were as a result of his orders. David wants to make it crystal clear as much as the house of Shaul, the descendants of Shaul, the supporters of Shaul, did everything in their power to prevent David from one day becoming king. As much as that is the case, David will not take vengeance against them. David will wait patiently for the events to work themselves out as God had indicated to Shemuel, as Shemuel had anointed David so many years before as the king of Israel. David has trust in the word of God, in the word of Shemuel, and will bide his time. It's not that he will be passive. It's not that he will do nothing to advance his own quest for one day becoming king, but he will take no action against the house of Shaul or against the Shaul supporters. Don't forget, of course, that David himself had sworn an oath to Shaul that when the day would come that he would be king, he would not destroy Shaul's descendants, and David keeps that oath. But at the same time, the events work themselves out in an advantageous way, such that, in fact, everything that prevents David from coming to the throne, all of the obstacles are removed one after the other, without David having to take an active role in any of it. In a nutshell, that is called divine intervention, divine assistance. And that's ultimately what allows David to come to the throne and for the purposes of the unity of the people in such a way that the great rift between the tribes, especially the tribe of Benjamin, Shaul's tribe, and the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, that that rift might be healed and those tensions might not be exacerbated and civil war might be avoided at all costs. So as chapter four comes to an end, the reign of the house of Shaul is over and it is now clear to everyone that David will be king over the tribes of Israel. 
Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.